I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Financial Times. We value your feedback. Please go to ft.com slash listen and fill out a short survey for a chance to win a pair of Bose acoustic noise-cancelling headphones. The FT. An 11th hour peace deal at leading investment trust Alliance Trust. Final salary pensions have long been touted as the gold standard for retirement, but are there circumstances when you should consider switching to other types of scheme? And we look at sell in May and other aspects of stock market seasonality. Welcome to The Money Show, one of the FT's most popular podcasts. I'm Jonathan Ely, and I'll be giving you all the week's money news in downloadable form, with the help of my FT colleagues Judith Evans and James McIntosh, plus a special studio guest, Matthew Demwell, a partner at consultancy Mercer. The annual general meeting of Alliance Trust is being held in Dundee today, but anyone hoping for a verbal shootout between the Trust's incumbent management and Elliott Associates, that's the US hedge fund that has a 12% stake in Alliance, is likely to be disappointed. The two sides yesterday reached an 11th hour agreement that gives Elliott most of what it wanted without the issues having to go to a vote. The hedge fund has now withdrawn its AGM resolutions and promised not to cause any more trouble, at least not until after next year's annual meeting. Judith Evans is at the AGM today and joined me in the studio just before she left. Judith, what have the two parties actually agreed and how does it differ from what Elliot originally wanted? So Alliance Trust has agreed to appoint three new directors to its board, non-executive directors, two of whom had been nominated by Elliot. Um, That's Anthony Brooke, who was formerly a director at SG Warburg, and Rory McNamara, who was at Morgan Grenfell. They will also appoint a third new director, but not the person that Elliot had asked for Peter Chambers they'll look for somebody else instead so um, in a sense it's almost a complete victory for Elliot who had named three people they wanted on the board Um, it's just that Alliance Trust will have a bit more choice in naming one of them. So these are all non-executive directors why are non-executives so important at an investment trust what role do they play? Well, the point about them is that they're um, external and they should be holding the trust to account, um, which is particularly important at this trust, Alliance Trust, because it runs itself. It um, has its own investment team, whereas a lot of trusts are run in investment terms by a separate asset management company. So non-executives are supposed to hold the trust to account. 
Um, and this issue has been raised in particular by a former director, Tim Ingram, who thinks that the board has been too compliant, um, that it has gone along with Catherine Garrett-Cox, the chief executive, where in fact it should perhaps be asking more questions and making more demands. Now, presumably, Alliance Trust wouldn't have agreed uh, to the two out of the three non-executive directors if it thought that its um, shareholders, many of whom uh, are ordinary individual investors, uh, were standing four square behind it. So um, when you visit Dundee later um, later today, what are you expecting to hear uh, from investors at that AGM? Do you think they'll be happy or do you think they'll be uh, annoyed? Well, um, the investors that I've spoken to, who are obviously just uh, just a few, have certainly recognised that there are issues at Alliance Trust. Um, the performance hasn't been great. The costs are relatively high. Um, and even those who were a bit sceptical about the involvement of a hedge fund in the whole thing have also said um, they would like to see some improvements. Um, that was probably evident when the results came in from the proxy voting, um, because Alliance Trust will by now have seen how people who voted who couldn't actually make it to the AGM. Um, and a lot of analysts are saying that it may have been in reaction to the results of those that they've reached this deal. So um, certainly I think investors will be looking forward to the next year to see um, whether performance will improve and, and whether um, Catherine Garrett-Cox will produce other changes. Well, talking of other changes, there was quite a war of words between uh, between Alliance Trust's incumbent managers and the uh, the people from Elliott uh, about the way uh, the business is run. Uh, presumably, those issues aren't going to go away just because they've reached agreement uh, on some new directors. What do you think is likely to change in, in the sort of years ahead at Alliance? Well, that's an interesting question. Elliot have effectively agreed um, not to agitate, not to make trouble for one year. That's not really very long in the life of a 127-year-old investment trust. Um, and they've previously expressed some, some quite um, strong views on bigger changes they think the trust needs, including um, cost cutting. And they're really not keen on the two subsidiaries of Alliance Trust, the investment arm and Alliance Trust Savings, um, the online platform. However, um, Alliance Trust is not saying that it's agreed to substantial changes to any of that. However, they're under pressure, not only over performance, but over costs. So it's not clear exactly what the next year is going to look like, um, but they're certainly under pressure now. And finally, Judith, the, a lot of the retail shareholders in Alliance Trust have been shareholders for a long time, sometimes across generations. Uh, and there's some suspicion that Elliot uh, is just planning a, a quick exit and he's going to sort of run off into the sunset with a big profit. Have they given any indication as to how long they're prepared to remain shareholders? They haven't. And this is one of the interesting questions because Alliance Trust have accused them of being very short term. Um, they've said that they just want the discount to net asset value to narrow as much as possible, as fast as possible, so that they can run for the hills. Um, Elliot say, well, we've been involved with this trust for, for five years. Um, and who's to say that we won't stay involved for longer? However, they are a hedge fund. They will be looking for an exit at some point. Thanks very much, Judith. Still to come on the show. Does it pay to sell in May, as the old stock market adage goes? Before that, let's take a look at final salary pension schemes. If you work in the private sector and you're a member of such a scheme, they're often called defined benefit plans, then you're a very lucky individual. Final salary schemes pay a guaranteed and rising income in retirement, usually based on your salary at the time you leave, plus your years of service. 
If you die, your spouse usually takes over the income stream. And if your employer goes bust, there is a partial safety net in the form of the pension protection fund. All this means that a final salary scheme usually offers far more certainty and better benefits than the more common defined contribution or money purchase scheme. It's also why financial advisors would very rarely recommend shifting from defined benefit into defined contribution. But the pension reforms that came into force at the start of this month have changed the equation. If you want to raid your savings or bequeath them to your heirs, your money must be in a defined contribution scheme. And that's led to an increase in the numbers of people saying they want to switch. But are they doing the right thing? Joining me in the studio is Matthew Demwell, who is an actuary and a partner at consultancy firm Mercer. Matthew, welcome to the show. What's your firm's experience been since these pension reforms kicked in at the start of uh, April? Have you seen an uptick in in inquiries about transfers? Well, Jonathan, um, Mercer provides pensions administration for schemes that cover about one million individual members. And we've seen the number of people asking for transfer quotations from their defined benefit schemes uh, going up by about 60% in the past few months. So there's a great deal of interest there. Uh, Now, why is that? Well, it's because if people transfer out of their defined benefit scheme at the point of retirement, they can access a great deal more flexibility than before. So, for example, the tax-free cash sum that they can usually take is more than if they stayed in their defined benefit scheme. And they can take more cash than that if they want, although it is subject to tax. They can also by a guaranteed income in the form of conventional annuities. Now, you mentioned earlier, uh, Jonathan, that pension schemes normally provide annual increases to pensions, but it might be of interest to somebody to have a higher income at the outset with no future increases, so that they've got more money to spend in their earlier and more active years of retirement. And there are more exotic options, such as drawdown, which will appeal to some people. It sounds like there's a lot of moving parts to this decision. How do individuals go about deciding um, whether it's in their interests to transfer from defined benefit to defined contribution? Well, good financial advice is really important. Um, And financial advisors carry out a fact find of an individual's sources of income uh, and their outgoings, their attitude to risk, and so on. It's then a question of seeing whether their existing defined benefit scheme best meets their requirements or whether they might be better served by transferring out. But while in most cases financial advice is a requirement before people can transfer, I think many individuals will be deterred by the hassle of finding a suitably qualified advisor and having to pay their fees so they won't get much further if they're left to their own devices. The advisors I've um, spoken to about this uh, are worried about two things. Um, they're worried that uh, clients will be annoyed um, when they are charged uh, 800 or £1,000 for a piece of paper saying this is a bad idea, don't do it. And they're also afraid that uh, if a client goes ahead with a transfer, despite having been advised not to, that they will be held liable at some point later uh, in the future. Does that put... Um, advisors and for that matter employers and administrators in a a bit of an awkward place when it comes to advising on transfers. Now first it's really important that employers and trustees don't advise members themselves. Uh, However I think a lot of them could be doing more to remove some of the barriers to accessing flexibility. So for example they can 
communicate with members generally about their options so that their retirement pack isn't the first they hear about it from their scheme. When schemes do send members details of the retirement benefits, they can automatically tell them what their transfer payment would be and give some examples of how they could convert it into alternative benefits. And they can line up and, to answer your point, uh, Jonathan, be prepared to pay for uh, financial advisors to advise members on their options. And typically that can start with a free phone telephone number to help with basic queries. So I think it's reasonable for members of defined benefit pension schemes to ask their trustees and employers to provide some of that kind of level of support. And finally, Matthew, uh, final salary schemes have faced a lot of uh, problems over recent years, uh, increasing longevity, low uh, investment returns and so on. If um, lots of people do move out or transfer out, uh, what is the impact on uh, schemes and the people who run them and the trustees and indeed the remaining members if that does happen? Well, many businesses have defined benefit pension schemes that are pretty large relative to the size of the company and, and are quite a financial burden. Now, when people transfer out of a scheme, that makes the pension scheme smaller and therefore more manageable, more affordable for the employer. And as you've indicated, many schemes have deficits, i.e. not enough money to pay out all the future benefits if you take a cautious view of future investment returns and so on. So employers are having to top up the funds, and that means less money to invest directly in economic growth. So if those low interest rates and people living longer do carry on, uh, the pension shortfalls can only get larger. So there is scope, I think, for pension schemes to be able to pay out transfers that are sufficiently generous to be attractive to individuals and advisable by financial advisors, but are still less than the long-term cost of the scheme. Thank you very much. That was Matthew Denwell, a partner at Mercer. The ins and outs of final salary pensions are the subject of our cover feature this week, and we've lots more detail on the technicalities as well as the pros and cons of transfers into defined contribution. You can read FT Money as part of the Weekend FT, which is available widely on both Saturday and Sunday, priced £3. Or you can read online, subject to registration, at ft.com forward slash money. There's also a subscription available on tablet devices for just £99 a year. Sell in May and go away. Don't come back to Ledger Day. This saying is probably almost as old as the stock market itself. It harks back to the days when the city was a bit like a giant gentleman's club, whose bowler-hatted members would practically shut up shop in May so that they could spend the summer going to Ascot, Henley, Wimbledon and various other upper-crust sporting events. The last of these was traditionally the St Ledger, the final classic of the horse racing season held in the second weekend of September. Such a gentle pace of corporate life has long disappeared. Liquid lunches have been replaced by power breakfasts, long holidays by 14-hour days, and nobody wears bowler hats or even red braces anymore. But does sell in May still work? And what of seasonal trends in the stock market more generally, like the Halloween effect or the Santa rally? James McIntosh, the FT's investment editor and the author of the Daily Short View column, joins me now. James, welcome to the show. London is one of the biggest stock markets in the world. Can its performance really still be influenced by the social calendar of the Downton Abbey era? Well, I suspect that it's not the social calendar per se. Um, This is an effect that's been found all over the world. Um, 
uh, dating back to the 17th century in some research. So this isn't really just about the upmarket brokers vanishing off to the country. In fact, I suspect that the focus on the St. Ledger race in the UK, which obviously doesn't happen anywhere else in the world, um, I suspect the focus on the date of that is much more to do with the penchant of the city traders for gambling than it is to do with the social calendar as such. Um, uh, go back far enough and, uh, of course, the same people that were trading uh, trading on the markets were also trading on pretty much anything they could. Um, this is really just a form of gambling. But does the is there a seasonal effect there? Do stocks do better in, in the winter months than they do in the summer ones? Absolutely, on average. Um, uh, they, they, the, the effect is well documented. Um, it does work. Um, the problem is, of course, that it doesn't always work. Um, and in the years when it doesn't work, it, uh, you, you end up feeling very stupid. Um, and people in general feel too stupid about it to do it because there's no decent explanation for why it should work. So it could, of course, just be that this has worked for 300 years by luck. Uh, it could be that there's an element of things like getting in the harvest and liquidity uh, over the summer, that there's just less trading happens and therefore the market is more likely to go down than up. Um, but it's it's hard to explain that because the, the measures that people use of things like liquidity, how easy it is to trade, don't actually seem to explain it very well. So whilst uh, sort of it sounds like a decent explanation, it doesn't actually work when people look at the numbers. So no one really knows why it has happened in the past, which makes people pretty cautious about actually putting it into effect. Because after all, you're going to feel pretty stupid if you sell your shares because of some saying that no one can really explain, and then the market goes up, as it fairly frequently does. What about other um, seasonal effects in the stock market? I mean, we hear a lot each December about the Santa rally. Is that real as well? Yes. Um, it's, a, it's a relatively new thing, the Santa rally. It used to be called the January effect. Um, but, of course, when an effect actually works and everyone believes in it, um, it, it works for behavioural reasons. People tend to review their their portfolios over the Christmas holidays, um, come back in January ready to take risk again. Um, uh, banks and traders tend to have their risk budgets set for the year, so they come back at the start of January uh, refreshed and ready to pile on a load of risk, and they pile into the, the dodgier stocks and the market goes up. Um, as that started to be fully recognised, it started to happen before Christmas because people arbitraged it away. Um, people anticipated that the market would go up in January, so they bought in the uh, late December um, and it became the uh, it became known as the Santa Rally. But again, it, it has genuinely worked, except of course in the years when it doesn't, and then you feel really silly. These sorts of uh, short-term trends uh, that, that do appear more often than not, I guess, are very useful for sort of day traders and people who are in the futures market. But the financial services industry is very fond of banging on, particularly about equities, as uh, long-term investments, and you should be buying and holding for at least five years. And then every year they all pop up and say, ah, but there's this uh, sell-in-May uh, effect. What should longer-term investors, as opposed to traders, really be doing about this, if indeed they should be doing anything at all? Well, either they should have... Well, well, whatever strategy anyone adopts, it should be a disciplined strategy. So, frankly, if you're someone who isn't likely to spend a lot of time focused on your portfolio, you should just buy and hold, leave it, uh, rebalance it once a year and leave it at that. Um, if you're going to be a bit more active, it's plausible to say, well, I'll adopt a strategy. And if you're willing to put up with uh, other people laughing at you when it doesn't work because of calendar-based effects, then a sell-in-may strategy, as I say, it has worked in the past 
nobody knows why um, but every now and again it will be disastrous um, and when it is everyone else will laugh at you but if you're willing to do it you have to be disciplined you have to say I will mark in my diary that every year on this day I will sell and every year on this day I will buy back and I will do it no matter what even if it looks like it feels to me the market is particularly expensive or particularly cheap on that day uh, strategies only work when they're disciplined so it, it, it there are of course alternative strategies which say well actually the market's very expensive I won't invest in shares at the moment that's also a plausible strategy but doing it on gut feel and saying well I won't buy back on this St Ledger day because it feels like everything's a bit overpriced you'll probably end up doing what most investors do most of the time which is sell at the bottom and buy at the top thanks very much James we'd love to know what you think about sell in May or about money matters more generally you can get in touch with us via email the address is money at ft.com or you can tweet us at ft money and you can leave comments at the foot of individual articles on our website just a reminder of the address ft.com forward slash money there's just time to tell you what else is in this week's edition my column takes a look at what must rank as the most dispiriting election campaign of recent times. John Lee explains why his daughter's share portfolios have done even better than his own. And Adam Palin looks at how the possible reintroduction of the 50p tax rate might affect higher earners. And as usual, we've share tips from our sister publication, Investors Chronicle, and the latest UK directors' deals. The Money Show will be back next week. But for now, it's goodbye from me, James, Judith, and our special studio guest, Matthew Demwell. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.